What up, Misfits? Welcome to the Misfit Heroes Podcast. My name is Chris, and together we are going on a journey. Okay, Misfits, quick disclaimer. This episode deals with some mature content. There's no cursing or explicit language, but the content and nature of this episode provides some mature subject matter. And if you're one of those awesome misfits listening to this in the car with your kids, you might want to save this one for later. I'll give you a few seconds to hit the pause button. Five, four, three, two, skip a few, one. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's get right to it. Misfits, sexuality and pornography addiction can be a tough topic to cover for a Christian podcast. While most people are focusing on addictions like the opioid epidemic, there's a quieter, less-known addiction plaguing our world that I believe is darker and more sinister than people realize. That darkness is porn and sex addiction. Here's some stats that you may not be aware of. Google receives over 68 million pornography-related search strings daily, which accounts for over 25% of all internet search traffic in total. 40 million Americans view pornography regularly, and over 200,000 Americans classify as having a porn addiction. The pitfalls of this addiction are often seen as black or white, backroom hidden secrets that mask some pretty major real-world issues. The fact is that the adult entertainment industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that profits amidst proprietors intertwined with crimes like sex trafficking, online bullying, kidnapping, and the inclusion of minors into a dark world of deceit, greed, and secrets. And with the rise of the accessibility and ease of use of technology, new users are created daily, and quicker and easier introduction to pornography is sucking in men and women young and old. So what do we do to combat this growing plague of behavioral addictions? My guest tonight is trying to do just that. Matt Wenger is lead therapist and clinical director at the Begin Again Institute and Boulder Recovery, a therapy center that helps Christian men repair and cope with sex and porn addiction. Their office has released a new book, Tinsa, Trauma-Induced Sex Addiction, and he has a vast knowledge of the root causes and traumas related around this hush-hush, often hidden addiction. We discuss how people get addicted to porn, the growing trends in technology that are creating these addicts, hypersexualization in modern media, stigmas around these addictions, and how we need to address these issues both as a church and as believers. Misfits, please welcome Matt Winger. Playing the Misfit Heroes podcast. Matt Wenger, welcome to the Misfit Heroes podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Yeah. Happy to be here. I say tonight, you're in Colorado. We're on a time difference or whatever, yeah. so you're probably like having breakfast right now. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, welcome to the show. I'll let you introduce yourself, actually. You are the clinical director and lead therapist at the Begin Again Institute. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what that involves and what do you do? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm a therapist and I work with men in the Begin Again Institute program. It's a rehab program for men who are struggling with sex and porn addiction and intimacy disorders. I work with the men that come through our program and I supervise the other therapists that work here. And yeah, we're a two-week program. We see about eight to 10 guys, sometimes up to 13 guys at a time. They come in as a cohort and they spend two weeks with us doing therapy like eight hours a day. And we get them started on a pathway to healing and recovery. 
And there's a lot of technical stuff and detail-y stuff in terms of like therapies and techniques that we use and stuff like that. But that's the main pieces there. I'm excited to talk to you about that because not only are you a therapist, but we've, we've had a conversation. You're also a believer as well. You're, you're a Christian. Yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. excited to talk to you about that from that angle as well. Before we get into the actual topic of addictions. How did you get involved with addictions and what type of addictions do you specialize in? So I started working initially as a therapist with kids. So I saw four to 18 year olds and mainly trauma therapy, right? So kids that have been abused or sexually abused or neglected things like that. So when I moved out to Colorado, I was looking for I was looking for a place to land and I met Dr. Michael Barda. He wrote a book called Trauma-Induced Sex Addiction, TINSA. And I just kind of applied. There was an opening and I, I didn't really know anything about sex addiction at the time. And so him and I met up and we were chatting and the crazy thing about sex addiction that I didn't understand was that it actually has everything to do with childhood trauma. And really not a lot to do with the behaviors and the fetishes and the kind of porn that you like and and this and that. Most of the time, what we're doing when we're working with addiction is we're working with why is there so much pain around in and around your life? And why are you using this specific thing to try to cope with that? So I actually got into working with sex addicts, not through having addictions in my own life or not traditional avenues, but just knowing and working with a lot of childhood trauma. And then basically being told was, hey, these guys are just little kids. They're just little kids with traumas and they're just taller, but we're we're dealing with the same things. And that really opened my eyes to like, man, like I I didn't look at it that way. I didn't think about it that way. And, And then over the last few years of just kind of being in and out of this every day and working with Dr. Barta and just gained some experience about how really true that is and how there's a, just a huge misunderstanding out there about what porn and sex addiction is really about. Yeah, it, it seems like there's a lot of stigmas around this. Yeah. And I think I'd like to talk to you since you are a believer. Can you talk about your faith walk? Everybody's got a story. Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah, sure. So my faith journey was I grew up in the church. My, my mom and dad were believers and I came to faith at a really early age at my mom's like or my grandma's VBS in her basement. Oh wow. Yeah, so I, I've been a Christian most of my life and I thought I wanted to be a pastor, you know. I, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and and I was a pastoral major there and I, I did some parachurch ministry work and but that's not the path that God had for me. But the way that this interacts with my faith is that originally, I think most people think that pornography and sex addiction is, is a moral issue, that it's bad. And we just need to tell people that it's bad. And don't you know, this is bad, you know, cut it out, you know, but it really doesn't have anything to do with that. And people ask me that question all the time. I say, well, I it has never, ever helped a single sex addict that I've ever worked with, a single porn addict I've ever worked with to tell them that their behavior is bad. They already know it's bad. They know it's bad before they do it. They know it's bad when they're doing it. They know it's bad when they're done. They feel terrible about it. They feel an immense amount of shame, particularly Christian men feel immense amount of shame around this behavior. So we have to think about different ways of looking at it as an addiction and different ways of treating it that aren't based in shame and aren't based in treating guys like there's something morally defunct about what it is that they're doing. You mentioned that you 
meet with, you know, 10 to 13 guys at a time. What are some of the modalities? What exactly can someone expect? How do you treat this? Yeah, it's a great question. So it depends, right? So we have a Christian program called Boulder Recovery, and we have a the Begin Again Institute. And those are kind of sister programs. And in the Begin Again Institute program, we're purely focused on the traumas, right? So we ask the guys, you know, what it is that was the most wounding stuff for you when you were like zero to 20. Usually when we get those stories from them, we're starting to see the roots of the behavior, even in the stories like dad was an alcoholic or mom really ignored me, or we had a divorce or a death really early on, or some sort of sexual abuse or some really, 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 really sad stories all the time. But within this trauma narrative is kind of the blueprint of what they're doing when they're acting out in their addiction. So we first dig through the trauma stories. And then what we're essentially what we're trying to do is help them actually develop a connection with their own emotions. Most of the time, trauma victims are so detached from their own emotions, they have trouble feeling their emotions, they have trouble feeling other people's emotions. And so they have all these disrupted relationships with their wives or their you know girlfriends or their kids because they have no contact with their own emotions so they can't be in contact with anybody else's right so our first our first work is to try to help them get in touch with their own pain their own emotion around their trauma that they've usually just like suppressed rejected or ignored or denied that it even was a thing for them or that it was a big deal we're going to help them try to meet with them themselves and their trauma and a lot of guys people think that that's backwards right like can't, don't they need to see the damage of their behavior don't they need to see how it's harming society right human trafficking broken understandings of of sex and intimacy don't they need to see that stuff and and all addicts will tell you this whether it's drug addicts or alcohol or whatever. They're just heads in a jar. They're totally detached from their body. They don't have connection with their emotion. All they have is these negative thoughts about themselves. And they're just kind of going and they're lying and they're manipulating people to try to, to get what they feel like they need from their addiction, right? So we first have to get them back in touch with themselves and their bodies. And we use a lot of techniques to do that. We use guided meditation to like go back into those traumatic memories and revisit themselves as a child. And we use techniques called brain spotting, which is a empirically validated trauma treatment. That's a lot like EMDR, if you've heard of that. I haven't. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So it's basically the thought that your brain is recording all of the time. And especially when a traumatic event occurs, the brain kind of perks up and all this data, all this input is coming into the brain. And when you're real little, it's really easy for that your brain to get overwhelmed, right? So what it does when you're involved in a traumatic circumstances, your brain gets overwhelmed, it records everything to process later. Um, and it kind of gets recorded in your brain and in your body and it's stored there to process later. So people that have endured trauma, they have these really precise memories, these very vivid memories of the traumatic event. They could tell you what they were wearing, what, what they could touch around them, what they were feeling around them, the smells, particular things that were in the room or in the space that they were in. Their brain just records everything. And since it was overwhelmed and it didn't, it couldn't deal with all of that emotional data, it saves it for later, right? So what we do with EMDR and brain spot 
plotting, you know, in kind of shorthand is we access that memory and give the brain space to process all of that data in a way with a, that a mature adult brain can. And in a safe place, in a supported space, they can feel through the emotions of that event. And in that way, they get to try to do that event again, but with a more successful emotional outcome. And then it can just be a memory. The problem with trauma is that it weaves itself together with like sensations in the body. So like if you have a traumatic memory, it's like, it just like, it grips you every time it's triggered, right? But if you're able to feel through it, you can kind of detach those sensations in your body and it can just be, it can be a sad memory, but not a memory that overwhelms your ability to function whenever it gets you know, set off. So yeah, so we're doing trauma techniques and and, and a lot of education around addiction and and neurobiology and how to have better relationships and things like that. It's interesting to me that you started in the field with children. A big issue, in my opinion, it just seems like more and more younger people are being brought into this situation. Mm. Yeah. For example, the way that we feel ourselves, the way that we think about ourselves and things like that is all attached to the things that we see and interact with in our daily lives. And it seems as if it seems like everywhere you look, there's some type of hypersexualization. You know, the other day I was watching YouTube and an ad for Cadillac pulled up on the YouTube screen. And it was this woman in a red dress. She's talking, just walking down a cityscape. And she says, when you turn on your car, does it do the same thing for you? And Uh and then a bunch of financing terms pulled up and things like that. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure there was never even a car in the (laughs) ad. (laughs) And it goes back to the whole thing, you know, sex sells. When we've got children that are seeing that, it seems as if they're being targeted by these media organizations and social media. And are you seeing your patients Mm -hmm. coming in as like a younger and younger age? Oh, yeah. So we see 25-year-old people and up, you know, all the way. We see guys old as 80 that have come through our program. But the inciting event around the development of their addiction has changed over time, right? Like the older guys that come through the program, their first exposure to pornography was magazines or a pinup or something like that. But with the younger guys, porn is ubiquitous. It's on people's phones. You know, it's easy access on the internet, pretty much anywhere if you know the right things to type in, right? And even if you type in the wrong things, it may pop up on, and especially with kids, right? That's a lot of times how they stumble onto pornography is just typing in things on accident. But with our younger guys, there is certainly a targeting that is going on. And it is very, very intentional. And in my opinion, very nefarious because the targeting of young people that's happening now with the sex industry is it does two things. One, they're trying to develop a high quantity of data with like short payouts in order to get people hooked. Like the good metaphor would be like a penny slot, right? So I'm investing like a very little amount of money to try to get like this hit of pleasure, right? So you're looking at apps and things like that where you can pay pennies. You can pay 16 cents or something for like a one minute video of pornography. And this is a totally revolutionary thing for porn and, and, and for addiction in general, right? If I if it costs me 16 cents for a one minute thing, and then all of a sudden all these microtransactions like you're seeing with video games and Call of Duty is doing it and porn has figured that out. 
and they say, well, we don't need you to buy $15, $30 video. We can get them for 16 cents. And, and we've developed a customer that's going to keep paying and over and over again. The other thing that is really nefarious about this industry is that they will target people's pathology in order to get them to be more long-term customers, right? So they'll there's all these categories out there that, you know, are really offensive but it's a it's a target for people that have been wounded that have been traumatized in those ways and their sexual templates have been branded with that trauma and so they go back to it in their pornography and if that's not taking advantage of people's pain i don't know what is and so yeah i can get pretty fired up about the way that this industry is targeting hurt people, traumatize people, and it's targeting kids with distinct strategies that are designed to catch, you know, millennials and younger with, with quick hits and short attention spans and all of that. It amazes me. You know, I recently got on TikTok, which feels weird to say as a 38-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> but I recently got on TikTok and, you know, they just start feeding you videos, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. And but the analysis that is done, you know, when you sign up and you create your username, it doesn't ask you much. It basically just asks, what's your gender? What's your age? And then it might ask, what are some things that you are interested in? But you don't have to put anything in that. But literally, just by knowing your gender and your age, the first couple things that start popping up are cars, girls, money. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's like the big three immediately. Yeah. I didn't have to tell them anything about myself. And I found that very interesting. And then as you go along and start to develop a, I don't know if you want to call it a relationship with this app, but as you go yeah. along and start hitting the like button for things that you like, then you start to notice that all that stuff goes away. But I've got friends of mine that are my age that say, you know, I don't want to see any of this stuff. And I agree. I don't want to see that at all. So the algorithms sort of work for them as well. But yeah. When you've got a generation that is just attached to social media on the daily basis, I think with our attractance to technology as mm -hmm. human beings, I don't know. I just see the future of that sort of affecting people's minds in a deep way, you know? Yeah. I've got good news and I got bad news for you. The bad news is that <laughs> this stuff is getting way more, way more hooked. There's way more opportunities for people to get snagged into addiction. We just know so much more about the brain now. In this industry, they're light years ahead of other industries in terms of how to get people hooked. We're talking about virtual reality. We're talking about augmented reality. We're talking about apps like the quick hit apps that I was telling you about. I mean, the bad news is this stuff is getting more and more sticky. It's like flypaper. You know, you land on it on accident and... This stuff is creating addicts just from exposure. So we used to think that addiction was, you had to have some underlying personal issue, emotional issue that predisposed you to addiction, whether that's genetic or an environment that you grew up in. But what we're learning now about this new wave of pornography that's out there is that exposure alone can create addiction. It is so like, it is so grabby that uh, some, even just with no emotional or, or vacancy in your home or, or traumas in your home, just the sheer like excitement of the thing and the ease of the thing is creating a new kind of pornography addict. The more classical kind of uh, sex and pornography addicts are ones that grew up in uh, traumatic environments or homes that had no emotional connectivity at all. Like we don't, 
we didn't talk about emotions or we don't talk about feelings and, you know, everything's fine. We're all fine here. You're fine. Everybody's fine. And we, we call that kind of hot emotional environments or really, really cold emotional environments where people are getting abused or they're being dismissed. And those traumas turn into a sex addiction when a kid is wounded in that way and then has an exposure to sexuality, like early exposure to porn, early exposure to masturbation or, or sexual abuse, right? And those things kind of wire together. Like I need to get my needs met. I'm not getting my needs met. Oh, look at this thing. This thing feels good. This 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 can help me get my needs met. And for a little while, it works for this young person, but then it quickly goes out of control. It's a coping mechanism that eventually turns into something I necessarily need to do to feel normal, to feel okay. With this newer pornography, we're not always seeing those underlying things, which is pretty scary. And I'm not here to be the boogeyman. But the the good news is that we're becoming more and more aware as a clinical community and even as a church community that sexuality needs to be discussed and needs to be understood. And, you know, it's exciting to be kind of at the crossroads of that, communicating with church leaders and with people that are seeking help. That, hey, this can no longer be a taboo issue. We have to move ahead because young people need to have support around this issue or they're going to get gobbled up. But I think we're headed in the right direction. Well, I definitely think you're right. I think the church is starting to see, you're starting to see more bold conversations with the church because these type of things, while they were there in biblical scripture times, Mm -hmm. not like this. It's, yeah. it's becoming different. And I guess you could say modern problems require modern solutions, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but that appears to be what's going on. I mean, what do you think the answer is to these things? I mean, is it just bold conversations or what kind of action can be taken for this problem in particular? You know, it's funny you say keep saying bold. You know, the name of our Christian program is Boulder Recovery, right? And, you know, it's based in Boulder, Colorado, so we call it Boulder Recovery. But it also has this boldness to it that we have to be bold in response to these issues. We have to confront them, right? And so to answer your question, like, what does the church got to do about it? I think we have to start, like you said, seeking modern solutions to modern problems. So many of the men that I talk to, and probably about 50% of the men that come through our secular program are Christians. And as I talk to them, I talk to church leaders, and I talk to pastors and parachurch leaders and all of these things that are struggling with this issue. I mean, we just talked to, I won't say which one, but a really prominent parachurch ministry that is firing men left and right because they can't stop looking at porn and they don't know how to help them. They put them on a, they put them on a plan of like, hey man, cut this out kind of plan and they keep flunking out of it. And so they're just burning through male staff members. But we have to think about what is a God-given solution to this problem that is not necessarily prayer and scripture reading and traditional pastoral counseling. God has guided humans to cancer treatment God's guided humans to treatments for for heart disease and lung cancer and ibuprofen for headaches and stuff. But Christians sometimes are not quick to think about what is a clinical solution to a compulsive behavioral issue like porn and sex addiction. And so part of our part of the uphill battle with this, and it's getting better, is is speaking to pastors and church leaders, not shaming them or calling them dumb or or, or anything like that, but saying, hey, this might be a, a bigger issue than putting some software on your computer or joining an accountability group. And um, this might go 
a couple of floors deeper down. And maybe along with prayer and along with discipleship and along with accountability, we get some specialized help around this issue. So, and there's a difference of thinking about this in, in the church community and the mental health community. And we really, like as Boulder Recovery, like we really want to cross-pollinate there. There, is, there shouldn't be a clinical and a religious divide here in the mental health or the church community. Because if God created the brain, he knows how it works. And if God created our bodies, he knows how to heal them. And if he's provided ways that are empirically validated and proven with testing and, and surveys and whatnot, that actually work for people, then why shouldn't the church avail themselves to those kinds of things? So part of our work is communicating with those leaders like, man, we want to be a resource to you. We want to help. There's millions of men in the church that are floundering around the these issues. And there's millions of wives and kids that are suffering because these men won't, uh, can't uh, stop doing these things and, and aren't getting the help that they need. So coming along churches and saying, hey, maybe kicking this guy out for repeatedly cheating on his wife and looking at porn, maybe kicking him out of the church, maybe that needs to happen, but maybe something else needs to happen along with that. Or, or, or maybe we can frame it differently. Maybe he needs to get help around this compulsive issue in terms of trauma treatment, in terms of behavior identification, in terms of being able to regulate his own nervous system without this coping device, learning how to do that. And those are all good and healthy things. It doesn't need to be a, a conflict between church community and the mental health community around this issue at all. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that we need to have empathy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> as you're saying this, I have this thought that as believers, you know, we've got to sort of, we've got to come together. It's got to be more than, you know, God will help you, but I won't. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I don't see how it's sustainable to see God's people as a group of people coexisting when it's like, oh, you break the rules, now you're out. You know what I mean? And I don't necessarily see that a whole lot, but I definitely see what you're saying. Yeah, and like pastors and church leaders and elders and, and these these guys and people, they, they love their their people. They love their churches. They're not trying to harm these guys. But a lot of times they're looking and they're like, well, we've only got a couple of tools here, right? We bring them in and tell them to cut it out. We tell them to get an accountability group, tell them to download covenant eyes or whatever. And we're pretty much out of tools. And so just being out there and saying, hey, there's actually more things that we can do to help. But one of the tools in the tool belt is, you know, essentially excommunication or, 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 or what you might call a spiritual or, or church discipline. And I'm not here to have a theological debate about church discipline. I think it's it's in the Bible. It's 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 a real deal thing. And a lot of the guys that come through our program have been under church discipline. And in some ways it it's helpful for them. But for Christian men that are struggling with this, man, they got they're feeling alienated from themselves. They don't really know themselves. They've been in addiction so long. They feel alienated from their families and their kids. They feel alienated from their parents. They feel alienated from their church community now. And perhaps, and most importantly, they're feeling alienated from God in the shame and maybe perhaps that they're feeling and the level of disappointment that they feel like maybe God has for them. And so the, the Christian man that's dealing with this addiction has two options. They apparently to them, it's either I hide and I continue to hide and lie about this, or I lose connection to everyone and everything in my life. And that's a really scary place to be. And so trying to communicate with these guys and with church leaders in a compassionate, educational kind of way of saying like, hey, we know that you love your people and you do it so well. And we want to be a resource for you because this experience is really hard for all the people involved, for, the, for wives and for their kids. 
and for the addicts themselves. And you said it, Chris, you said empathy. Empathy is the thing that is required to recover from addiction. I need to be able to feel my own feelings so that I can feel with your feelings. That's the path out of addiction for the guys in our program is empathy. And we ought to have empathy for the men struggling with this addiction. One of the challenges that we're up against, though, is just the demonization of the behavior. So it's really hard for people in the public and and, uh, churches to know how to respond when these double lives and and, and stuff like that come to the service. Yeah, it seems like our first instinct, you know, in that situation would be telling them, hey, you need to repent, you know, but I think there's also something needs to come alongside that, you know, you need to repent, but we also need to repair. We also need to reform. You know, let's talk about the stigma in itself. What exactly are stigmas in the first place? Is it judgment or what types of things do you see that many of these people that come to see you are dealing with? Well, it's a complex thing. You know, if if they were to get up in front of their church and this often happens in in many churches and and proclaim that they are six months sober from alcohol, they would get a round of applause and everybody would be really excited about it. But you get up there and say, I'm six months sober from sex and pornography. You probably have a dead silence in that room. And then we're talking about, well, now they're not going to work in the kids program. They're not going to be able to volunteer with the teenagers. You know, they're they're off the deacon board. So this, this stigma is very real. And it's different because especially with this addiction, people assume not in a, a mean way, but they are ignorant to what sex addiction actually is. And so they, they assume it means that these guys just want to go crazy on everything that moves. And that's really not the issue at all. Well, I mean, I know we've been talking about men this whole conversation, but I mean, it, honestly, this issue is very prevalent with women as well. You know, I mentioned earlier that, that I'm on TikTok and I, I wanted to talk about a video that I saw the other day on TikTok. It was this girl and it was meant to be a joke. It was meant to be funny. And this girl is like, you can tell she's in the, the back room at wherever she works in her day job or whatever. And she's like, I'm so tired of my job. I can go on to a site like OnlyFans fans and sell pictures of myself naked. It was obviously more humorous <laughs> than that. But if you think about the mindset behind something like that, at its core, it's it's literally kind of the exact same thing that the men that we're talking about deal with. When we were talking earlier about, you know, these apps and these websites that sort of create the microtransactions and things like mm-hmm. that, what we're really talking about is an incentive for these people to do that. You know, it's not like there's some adult entertainer that is making thousands of dollars an hour or whatever. They're inciting just regular people that may not have even been open to anything like that. But now that they see this opportunity and they you combine that with social media and they see other people that are making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's like, well, why would I go work a day job when I can just sit in my room all day and do this? It's like a, a vicious circle. of creating new users and habituating older users. When does it stop? (laughs) Yeah. And that's the sad thing. I don't know that it's going to stop. People joke around all the time like, oh, you guys are in a a growth industry. It's a sad truth. I, I don't know if it's going to stop. But what we can do about it is start to talk differently in our communities about sex and sexuality, what it is and what it isn't what it's for and what it's absolutely not for. Not in a moral sense necessarily, although there's some truth to that, but in a psychological sense, like what is sex actually for? Bonding and procreation. It's not going to bring you affirmation and validation. It's not going to bring you the ultimate peace and safety in your life. It's not going to bring you escape, maybe for like a minute, maybe for a few seconds. What creates addiction is these internal needs that 
we think are getting satisfied by the addiction, but they're really, the addiction is just making worse. For example, if I uh, log onto a porn site because I'm feeling lonely, how do I feel when I'm done with that whole process? Probably more lonely, probably more depressed, probably more sad or anxious than I did before. Are these addictive behaviors, they promise a solution to a problem, but they're only making it worse. So we need to start having these conversations within our society. America believes that it is a very moral and founded on these Christian principles. And and one of the side effects of that is that we don't know how to talk about sex. And yet we're the most sexualized society out there. So it's this awful combination of over-sexualized society and really no comfort or ability to talk about what sex is and what it isn't. And um, the church is right in the middle of that. You know, we're getting better. But when a pastor gets up in front of the church and starts talking about sex, it can be a pretty awkward Sunday morning. You know, um, a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. So, yeah, we got to find new avenues to really talk through. Got R-rated movies all the way down to Disney movies that are teaching people about what sex and romance and love is. That's totally off base and is kind of looping kids and young people and adults into these euphoric understandings of what true love and sex and all that is supposed to be. And we got to have more grounded conversations about these things. Yeah, I think the normalization is definitely something that needs to be addressed. You know, if I look back at my life, like I said, I'm 38. And if I look back at my life at sort of the timeline of the years, when I was a kid, MTV was starting to be a thing, right? Yeah. And I remember my grandparents, everybody had that grandparent that was like, MTV is going to ruin this generation. It's (laughs) going to rot their mind, right? Yeah. And I remember their thought process was like back in the 50s with like Elvis. And then you saw Mm -hmm. the 60s with Jimi Hendrix and the 70s with, I don't know, like Led Zeppelin or something like that. But now the types of content that are being exploited now, it's very similar in nature to that, just a different sort of topic. And in regards to the normalization about that, you were mentioning that Um, when people are, they're doing whatever action that they're trying to do. It's the same thing with substances as well, you know? Oftentimes, people, they get addicted to a substance, not because they actually like the substance, but because they want the connection of that person. Well, you make a good point. When we talk about sex and pornography addiction, ultimately, and this is kind of a spoiler alert, you know, when we bring guys in the program and, and like, hey, you know, what you guys are, you guys aren't actually dealing with a porn and sex addiction. You're actually dealing with an intimacy problem an intimacy disorder. And this is part of this cultural conversation that we need to have is that as we get more obsessed with technology and phones and communicating virtually and losing that connectivity that that humans are really designed for, we've lost a lot of our skills about how to have intimate relationships. And I tell the guys all the time, you know, we use sex and intimacy as synonyms now. We've got those so confused that um, to be intimate with someone is to have sex with them and vice versa. Rather than and seeing sex as a culmination of intimacy or a consummation of intimacy. We see it as the definition of intimacy. And the side effect is that like these guys are alone. They're isolated. They think they're the only ones dealing with this issue and nobody's ever going to understand them. And they lie and they perform and they have an act and a facade they put up and a curated profile. And they try to get everybody to buy in. Again, another level deeper, right? Well, I, if I'm always, every time I'm talking, I'm lying and they're just filled with shame and hiding. People don't really don't understand that, that this is actually an intimacy problem. And then I can get my needs met emotionally and sexually, I think, by doing this or that thing. And it doesn't cost me anything emotionally. And it feels safe. It feels like I can control it. Well, of course, that's going to be really addictive behavior. But you're going to end up on an emotional island 
uh, having no connections to anybody in your life and having all these really shallow relationships, bad marriage until you inevitably get caught. And then the uh, crap hits the fan, so to speak. The facade comes down and people feel betrayed. They feel betrayed because they didn't know you like that. They feel betrayed because maybe you made promises to them and vows that you broke. Kids feel betrayed that their parental figures uh, would do these things that they always preached against. It definitely seems like a lot of the fix for these issues is sort of inherent inside of the problem. You know, mm. If, mm. If, if you're not experiencing the communication or if you're not receiving what you're looking for, instead of taking the quick, easy fix of what you think would fix it, why not have that conversation? And I think going back to the churches, I think that's definitely something that should be focused on with how we handle these situations in the future so we don't create a additional stigmas aside from that. You know, the communication is really important. Like the underlying lie of all these kinds of addictions, these shame-based addictions is that if you really knew me, you would reject me. If you really knew me, you would reject me, right? So I'm cut off from effective communication from from the jump because I can't let I can't let you see the real me. Right now, imagine how that would affect the relationships with their partners, their wives, and how that would affect their relationship with God. I got to hide from him too. And maybe he's really judged. Maybe he hates me. Maybe he doesn't like me. Maybe he's sabotaging my life. Maybe he's trying to punish me. All these dysfunctional things about our relationship with God, right? If you really knew me, you would reject me. And so many of the guys we work with come in and they say, you know, there's really no safe space for me to talk about any of this stuff. They have, they're telling us stuff in treatment that they've never told anybody in their whole lives because there's no place for them to communicate that or and nobody in their lives they feel like could understand that information. And if, if we could see in the church the kind of accepting and empathetic community that we see in the support community around addiction, man, that would change the game, wouldn't it? Like if people could come and, and just lay everything out and know that they weren't going to be judged, that they were going to be accepted and supported, that would change the game. I think that when we're dealing with people that have an issue, the way that we handle them, I think that you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar, you yeah. know? And I think here's the thing is that bad things are bad things. That's just it. Like, Issues are issues, but if we truly want to help people change their life, if we truly want to help people better themselves, I think we have to come to the realization that issues are issues, but they are not people. People are not issues. Mm -hmm. Issues are things that affect people. And how we handle those issues that are affecting those people is our job as believers. And you're exactly right. Like, oh, man, I, I wish that we could see as a church that these issues as people, instead of getting roped into how society talks about this stuff and sees it as some sort of excuse or justification for bad behavior, like, oh, I'm a sex addict and that's why I did this or that, that and go oh, feel sorry for me. Around your trauma, I'm I'm totally open to compassion for you and the distress in your life and the dysregulation of your body and your nervous system that you feel like this desperate, overwhelming desire to try to cope with. I have so much compassion for that. And it is absolutely not a justification or an excuse. We cannot get those things confused. And we need to see the individual. We need to see them a unique individual in the unique circumstance of their life. And when people are ready to get better, they're kind of done making excuses. They understand the hurt and the pain that they've caused to the people in their life. And um, they're not interested in dodging that anymore. 
They're not interested in excuses anymore. That's when we know that guys are ready to work. The way that it shows up in the Christian community, though, is really sticky because guys that aren't ready to work on it, they tend to swing the pendulum in the opposite direction of vulnerability. They tend to be more judgmental. They tend to be more mean. They tend to be kind of spiritually abusive of their wives and to try to throw up this kind of religious smoke screen. And I use religious with like that, that capital R religious, right? That the pharisaical response to try to push people away from them and to put up this moralistic smoke screen to try to keep people from looking too closely, right? So you get these guys that are just hellfire and brimstone kind of guys. And then you see, uh, some scandal come up around their lives. And like that's the shape that this can sometimes take in Christian communities. So imagine the fallout with that person's wife. And you were telling me for years that it was my problem, that I was the bad Christian, that I didn't trust God, that I don't have faith, and that I need to be a better wife, and I need to work out, and I need to go see a therapist, and I need to lose weight. And this whole time you were doing, you were doing all this. And both of those things have to be true, Chris. And I tell this to guys in the program all the time. In your addiction, if you lose connection with your identity as a victim of trauma and only hold on to your identity as an abuser or as a perpetrator of hurt into other people's lives, you know, more accurately, then you're going to see yourself as a, a, a piece of garbage and a monster. And other people might look at you that way too. If I only hold on to my identity as a victim of trauma, then I can't relate to the pain that I'm causing in other people's lives through my addiction. I actually have have to hold both of those things that I have endured trauma in my life and I'm hurting people in my addiction. I have to hold both of those things that I have maybe spiritually abused my wife to hide my addiction, but I was also perhaps spiritually abused as a kid. So we encourage like guys to, to hold those two truths at the same time. And, and guys that are struggling with ad- addiction tend to be black and white thinkers. It's either all good or all bad, or I'm, I'm a great person and I've got everything under control, or I'm a piece of garbage and, and I don't deserve love and cast me out among the lepers, you know, or whatever else. So I hope other people can, maybe that are listening to this, can start to have that kind of compassion, empathy that you're talking about. Who needs you? Do you see what I'm saying? What is somebody going to be experiencing that's going to want to come to Boulder Recovery? I really appreciate that question. The guys that we're looking for are guys that, A, they want to get better and they want to get better for them. They want to get better not to save their marriage, but they want to get healthy. They have a dopamine problem. I'm getting this hit of dopamine all of the time and I'm objectifying women in public or I'm looking at porn multiple times a day and all this or acting out in other ways. And I have a dopamine addiction and I need help. I want to get healthy. And then in finding health, I I can repair my relationships, but I got to put the horse before the cart here, right? If I go here to save my marriage, then it's only a matter of time before I slip back up, right? So they got to get, want to get better for them. We're also, uh, we're looking for guys that are struggling to make consistent steps in healthy living. Guys that come to see us are stuck in relapse patterns. They're relapsing uh, uh, with their use of porn or other sexual acting out behaviors, but they're stuck in a pattern. Like every weekend they're doing this or every time they get into an argument with their wife or every time they feel stressed about work and they're, they're stuck in these tight patterns. So maybe they're seeing a therapist, maybe they're not, but they just can't seem to get traction. We also want to see guys that are struggling with distressing memories, distressing pain from their past that's gone unaddressed or been repressed for a long time. Maybe they don't even know that a lot of this compulsive behavior has roots in that pain. We want to see guys that really want to engage with a 
deeper, more authentic relationship with God. And I say that, Chris, I mean that specifically because trauma tends to pollute our relationship with God, that we start to see God uh, in the same way that uh, perhaps our, our trauma has taught us to see the world, that God is an abuser, that he's out to get me or to sabotage me or undercut my happiness, or God is dismissive and he doesn't care and he's not paying attention and he has his back turned to me. And I need to get, I need to be a better person. I need to do the right thing. I need to pray harder. I need to read my Bible more. And then, then maybe he'll turn around and pay attention to me. So we want to see guys that are interested in deepening their understanding of their addiction, finding healing around their trauma, repairing their relationships, and ultimately moving into a deeper understanding of themselves and in their relationship with God. That God isn't tapping his foot, waiting for them to get their stuff together. If he saw them from a long way off, even in all this deviant behavior or whatever you want to call it, that he would run to them and he would embrace them and he would fall on them crying and it, be so excited that, that, that they're home. That God does so much compassion for them. And you know, we, want to, we want to see guys find renewal around that relationship, around their core identity as a creation of God. So that's kind of what we're looking for in, in the men that we see in our program. Obviously, anybody who wants to get better, regardless of where their behaviors are at, are, are welcome. Well, how can people get a hold of you? Are you guys on social media? Do you have a website? How can people get a hold of you to look for some help? We got kind of two programs. One, you know, beginagaininstitute.com. That's our more secular program. We believe that humans are intellectual, spiritual, and emotional beings, and, and your Christianity is welcome within that program, but it's not the kind of the core feature of that program. And then the other program is the Boulder Recovery. That's Boulder with a U, like the city of Boulder. And that boulderrecovery.com is a way in which you could sign up for our next, we call them intensives, our next two-week intensive. I'm really excited about this program because it's two weeks, so you can take off vacation. You don't have to necessarily blow up your work situation. It's pretty affordable in terms of rehab programs, so it's very accessible to people from all income levels. Uh, all the information about when the next one is and how to sign up is on the website website and boulderrecovery.com. Well, Misfits, definitely go check them out if you know or if you are affected by this issue. I definitely think that Matt is somebody that is very open-minded about everything, and he clearly he knows his stuff if you listen to this conversation at all. So, uh, Matt, I'm very excited to have talked to you. Thank you for coming on here. Yeah. At the end of every podcast that I've done this year, I've been asking all my guests, what was the last goal that you completed, and what's the next goal that you want to set? Wow. Um, you know, the last goal really was developing uh, with the team here, this uh, cur the curriculum for the program that we're launching, the Boulder Recovery Program. I mean, this has been an effort of the whole last year to get uh, basically a whole new business started up within a company that's already running. Um, so I'm really proud of that. I think my next goal is to like actually actually finish a book. I read I read about three fourths of so many books and I want to um, I actually want to finish one. You know, all the way through, cover to cover. That'd be a, it'd be a real achievement in like the COVID world right now, right? Because I come home and like flip on Netflix and just trying to cope with all this craziness. It's easier to to just zone out. But but yeah, that's that's my goal. I got a couple. I got like three books stacked over here on the side of my desk. I need to need to get all get all the way through. That'd be great. All right. Well, I'll call you out. I'll ask you. So, what are the three books that you're reading right now? What are you into? Oh man, you're really gonna you're gonna get me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. So, I I've got Attachment Theory and Practice by Sue Johnson. It's an amazing book. I've got 
It Didn't Start With You by Mark uh, Wolin, who it's a epigenetic study of trauma. So kind of the genetic roots of trauma. My coworker has sneaked in a Warhammer 40,000 <laughs> manual because he wants me to start playing this tabletop game with him. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not biting yet. <laughs> Gosh, I don't have to be money. careful with that. Yeah. Be careful with that. It's it's a dangerous, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I've got systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. Uh, so okay. w- what a collection of, 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 it's, uh, of books. Here. It's diverse. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Matt, this has been a pleasure. I mean, thank you again for coming on. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Misfits, go check Matt out. I definitely think that, like I said, if, if you know somebody that's going through something like this, or if you yourself are experiencing difficulties, I mean, clearly Matt knows his stuff, and I think he's a very safe space for you to talk to him. So, Matt, thanks again for coming on to the podcast, and I'm going to wrap this guy up. Have a great evening, Matt. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Chris. Thanks a lot. Well, Misfits, we did it. That's our episode. I want to thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our sponsors. If you want to support any of our sponsors, there are affiliate links on the Sponsors tab of our website at www.misfit-heroes.com. You can also find links to all of our social media there, so follow us for immediate up-to-date info about the podcast. Please, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to help us out, do us a favor, rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. Good or bad, just let us know. Truly Misfits, we love you. Thank you so much for listening. And until the next episode, be kind, love one another, and be a hero.